Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now here's the host of the show, a man who once lost a movie because he got a bad recommendation from the real-life star of The Sound of Music, Maria Von Trapp. It's TV's Tim Stack. Yay! Yay! Yeah! Listen to that crowd. Oh, the crowd loves me. Uh, you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Uh, my, I think my guest today is the guy who brought up, who made up the term TV's Tim Stack. We'll get to him. In the meantime, uh, my Maria Von Trapp story is a little nutty. So back in the 80s, uh, I actually got lucky and I got a couple of TV movies made back when they were making TV movies. And so I did one with Robert Conrad and one with uh, Valerie Bertinelli. Again, I had no business doing these, but they bought them. So it was like, okay. So I had came up with this idea. My mom lived in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. That's where I grew up. And there's this incredible furniture maker, really beautiful furniture. His name was George Nakashima. You can Google them. Beautiful. I mean, just incredible work. Not cheap. So, but I heard his story and it was really interesting. He had been interned during World War II and not great things happened. And, but he sort of introduced the world of, of spirit and of the forest and trees. And at the time, I was friendly with Pat Morita, you know, karate kid guy who came on to do Son of the Beach later on. He was really funny, great guy. And I thought, wow, that his story is really cool. There's, there's a story here. So I approach his, he had since, Nakashima had since passed away. I approached his widow to get the rights to the story. And she said to me, hmm, that sounds really interesting. Uh, I'm going to talk to my friend and I'll get back to you. I went, okay, great. So a week goes by and then the phone rings and it's George Nakashima's wife. I can't remember her first name. And she said, well, um, I do not want to be a part of your movie, and we do not want to be a part of this. And, I th- and she was very kind of obstinate, and I thought, well, that's weird. It was just all you have to do is say no thanks. And, and I, said, uh, I said, oh, okay, is there any reason why? She said, well, I talked to my good friend who had a movie made about her, and she said it was a horrible movie and a horrible experience. And I said, oh, okay, well, no worries, just, you know, good luck. Do you mind me asking who your friend is? And she said, it's Maria Von Trapp. And I thought to myself, wait a second, Maria Von Trapp didn't like the sound of music? Like, who doesn't like the sound of music? It's one of the most beloved films of all time made. And I thought, well, if you're friends with Maria Von Trapp, I don't think you should be in the movie business either. So I called it a day anyway. That was my Maria Von Trapp story. So uh, let's introduce my guest, and we're going to start with this little bit of clip, this little music uh, from David Letterman. Okay, that clip was played for a reason. We're going to find out why. In the meantime, here comes the introduction. Dr. D, can I get a drum roll for this man? Okay, he is the writer of the movies Wild Hogs, Jerry and Marge Go Large, 
and Yogi Bear, to mention a few. There are many more. And his TV credits include Arrested Development, My Name is Earl, we'll talk about that, and Life in Pieces, again, to mention a few. Please welcome the very prolific and successful Brad Copeland. Yay! Happy to be here. Bradley, thank you. I have a Nakashima uh, bench in the other room, a walnut bench, and I'll never look at it the same. I, I've never heard that story before. Do you really have one? I do. I do. We have a lot of the old mid-century stuff that we've collected over the years. We got it, I mean, 20 years ago when it was still affordable. But uh, that's amazing. That's I a never, crazy story I, I that you have story. one. Yeah, and I didn't know about his story either. I just figured out oh, he's like, like I know the, the Charles Eames story of bending the plywood, you know, in World War II, whatever. I didn't know that Nakashima had a big story. No, well, he, he was friends with my mother. Somehow my mother, well, my mother had a radio show. So she used to have him on every couple of years or so. And he was a very interesting guy. And then he wrote, there's a book about him. And he talks about, I'll, I'll see if I can find the book for you. Um, and but he I want to I want to get the rights now just to show you just as a complete <laughs> dick move. I think the I think she has since passed away, and I know Maria von Trapp, God love her, has blessed away, has passed away. <laughs> um, so uh, that's crazy. You, it it is beautiful furniture. It's unbelievable. Beautiful, yeah, beautiful. And he definitely established that minimalistic, just pure walnut balance stuff. Yes. it was great. Yeah, but he had this whole ritual with the tree when he was going to make furniture, and and he, you know, it was really cool. Um, anyway, that's so I, that. I, have the, I have that same ritual when I write because I know <laughs> I'm going to print it on paper, so I go out <laughs> and I honor a tree. <laughs> exactly, honor the tree. Say so you're going to be Yogi Bear. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's funny. So, uh, first of all, I got in touch with Brad to do this, and uh, for some reason. I called in the letter. I was like, hey, would you mind doing this? And I said, uh, and please, you know, my best to your wife, Robin, in which he was nice. In the, and I was so dead sure that it was Robin. It was like, it was no question. And yeah. then Brad reminded me his wife's name is Eric. The, so, the amusing uh, thing was the, the girl I had a crush on in elementary school was named Robin. And uh, I was like, when you said, I'm like, oh, it's, it's what could have been. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did okay. Um, so speaking of, speaking of growing up, uh, I just want to go back a little bit. You grew up in Florida, correct? Yep, in Orlando, Florida. Which is its own sort of like nurturing in a way florida's cr my my friend another writer from florida barry Fernero, says you go 10 miles from the ocean in florida you're in a different world so clearly that had an effect on you it did it did florida's a weird <laughs> it's a weird life to start with but then orlando is even weirder because you have this cross-section of tourists but also just the reddest of the rednecks and it's just all there and it just it, it does it changes within a mile if you get on the wrong side of the freeway then you're at you know a place that you could get uh in some trouble if you don't have the right truck uh so it's, it's very strange <laughs> and I, I loved it i thought it was great yeah and it's where you grew up so it's all you know and uh you know but clearly you want you 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 had some adventure in you in order to get out so which we'll we'll, we'll get to um so and the family i remember was a there's some military in your family right yeah so well my dad was in the navy but both my brothers you know we, we were three pretty close in age uh my older brother's 15 months older and then uh, another brother's two and a half years older so we were all you know irish twins 
and uh, three boys, and I was the youngest of three boys, and they're both military. One was an Apache pilot, uh, and the other is uh, a Navy Annapolis guy who flew the P3 and then uh, is currently the commander of a base in Virginia. <laughs> so it's very strange. It's so weird. And like, so even growing up, you know, they were the athletes and they were, you know, they're taller than me on the short. I'm 6'2 and I'm the short one of the family. Um, and I was like the marching band art kid. I just did art and band and they just looked at me like I was from another planet and they still do. <laughs> they're still like, what the hell? Now you they just, come out. one time I remember you're telling me you're going back to Newport, Rhode Island for a family reunion and, and there's the big Navy presence there and all that. And I remember you even then saying like, at this point, you're very successful and still like, hey, here comes the oddball. Here comes the weird guy. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's still it still is that. And there's still some, it's just a weird relationship. But it did. It, I think uh, especially as a sitcom writer, it really it gave me a ton of stories and it kind of molded me into this comedy writer. Uh, you know, if, if you could forge a comedy writer, put him in marching band and give him two you know, I, I imagine like the, the like Bill Paxton of Weird Science, that brother. Right. Give me two. Give him two of those. <laughs> and you're, there's, there's no other direction besides comedy writer. So you mentioned uh, Florida and Gators. Um, so you go to the University of Florida. And one of the things I always loved you talking about, we never got to see video, was you were literally the band major for the University of Florida band. Yes. Which is drum major. Drum major, which is, I'm guessing, at the University of Florida, a big deal. It was like, it's a, it's like, a, how did you get that? How did that come about? I tried out for it. I was, you know, they, uh, I was in the band to start with. I was a trombone player, um, and it's a big band, uh, but uh, I think it was 400 people back then. And uh, it's like politics. You start to kind of like make your moves within you. Like I, I became, you know, I'm going to be section leader and right. I'm going to make sure the, the band director knows me. I'm going to make sure he has no, knows interest. Um, and then they have drum major tryouts. And some of it is technical. You have to know music and you have to be able to arrange music and know how to arrange mark. But there's still 30 kids that know how to do that. So then you have an audition and you have to kind of stand up and conduct and, and do all the things that you're supposed to do with no bands, just you're conducting a ghost and you come up with your own music. <laughs> and I did something. I was definitely the underdog. The other guys had been doing it a few years. They had done it in high school. And so I, I, uh, I conducted uh, a, a marching band arrangement of Star Trek. And in the middle of, of the conducting thing, I had convinced my friend to put on a Star Trek uniform yeah. and to come and attack me during it. And then we had like a stage, <laughs> like a uh, uh, like a stage Star Trek fight with the music. And the band directors were just like, what? What is happening? And it was like that first taste of like, you can break rules, you know? And I, I continued to do that throughout, you know, writing spec scripts or whatever. It's like, right. you can uh, you can really break rules in the creative world and people often aren't expecting it. And it had great results. They're like, all right, well, let's, this guy's going to be outside the box. Let's go with, let's go with him. Um, and it was an amazing experience. You know, you get to write the halftime shows. There's 85,000 people in that stadium. It's even right. more now. So it's like you have a captive audience for a Broadway show for 10 minutes every day, every week, every Saturday. And uh, it, it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. Was that your introduction to writing? I'm putting writing in quotes, but it sounds like you was. 
Yeah, it was it was my introduction to writing somewhat like, you know, we did like a Blues Brothers show. So I got to write, you know, how me and the other drum major were going to act and like we can do scripted stuff within the halftime show. Um, and we did a lot of creative outside the box stuff. The sad thing was this is before YouTube, just slightly. So now whenever these marching bands do it, especially like Ohio State and stuff, it's all viral on YouTube. Yes. And we were doing all of it way before then. We were doing these crazy shows. We were doing, you know, a show where we broke down. Everyone did the hustle in the middle. We were doing all this stuff and, and uh, no one ever knew it. <laughs> but yeah, that was my introduction to writing. And then weirdly... I got uh, my senior year. I applied for the David the, to be uh, intern at the Late Show with David Letterman. Okay, in New York, that was even higher. That was even higher odds of of not getting it. And marching band helped me get that. How did that? How did marching band help you? Just in terms of writing? Yeah, well, I, I applied for it, and I had I had done some humor columns and stuff in the school newspaper, and that, so that at least got me through the window of interviewing. They fly two hundred kids out there, and then there's. I actually you fly yourself out there. They would pay for anything, but, uh, and then they interview those 200 kids for 10 departments. You know, there's a Paul Schaefer intern, there's the Letterman intern. Um, and there's three interns for the writing section. There's two, uh, uh, two interns for talent, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I didn't think I was a shoe in for anything. I didn't think I honestly get it. Cause you could tell the other, they were like Harvard kids and what I'm just this right. dumb red from Florida. But the uh, David Letterman's executive assistant, the top Lori Diamond, who's been with him, uh, was with him since the NBC days. She was a marching band person. <laughs> she was really. Like, she, yeah, she's like, you're in the marching band. I love it. You know, I was I was in the marching band and now I, then I got into ballet and blah, blah, blah. So I just hit it off so well with her that by the time Letterman came through, she was like, she's like, this is the guy. This is the guy where he's going to be really your really funny. And, of course, David was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and keeps walking. So I got that purely just, I've just been lucky. I'm like, I'm like the forced gump of uh, sitcom writers. But through, so I just, through the marching band. Yeah. From uh, in many ways. Um, but uh, so yeah, I, I got that. And uh, I senior year of college, I headed out there and I started writing and doing whatever I could uh, to kind of, show them that maybe I had a future as a writer. And then, um, did they let, that, did they let you write stuff? Well, they, they let me write. David said I could submit for the top 10 list and right. I did. And you know, he would circle it. And then when one got circled, um, by Dave, the writing staff, uh, the producer came and talked to me and he said, I know Dave said this to be nice. I know we circled yours, not no, because it's all anonymous. You know, I mean, they're just putting it all in the in his box, right? Uh, but you're not in the guild, and we're not going to use this. Oh my <laughs> but it didn't really matter because it taught me, like, oh, it's you know, yeah. coming, especially being a kid in Florida, you think that's like a superpower, you know, writing movies or writing for TV shows, and and you know, as a writer in SNL, it's not a superpower. It's just you just got to try it, and and uh, all the people doing it are just like everybody else. They just have a little creative spark, but a lot of it's just trusting that you have the ability to do it. In that moment, I realized, oh, I can do this. And uh, and I headed out to L.A. on Letterman's advice. He said, if you want to be a writer, this is the wrong place. Okay, let's let's hold that. We'll get that out after the break. But we got a little time left before the break. Can you can you tell the story about David's car? Because <laughs> there's like three of them. Which one? Oh, the one where I crashed it. Yes. It's one of my favorite Hollywood stories. Oh, there's there's so many. But the uh, I, I I got that internship. One of the things you have to check off when you're interviewing all the departments is, are you can you drive a stick? And I said, yeah, I can drive a stick yeah, you're from Florida. 
I couldn't drive a stick. I couldn't drive a stick at all. I had been like my friend's Volkswagen like twice. Yeah. Um, so I got in there and I, he, he had driven his uh, Dodge Stealth that day and it was a stick and I put it in reverse thinking it was first and just slammed into a taxi. I crashed his car. So this is your first day. First day, bent it all up. And then I did it like twice more. Like, like he, but he drove, he, he drove his Porsche one. He had a, the three cars he would drive were the Porsche, the Dodge Stealth, and this crazy station wagon that was souped up that was built by Newman Haas Racing. And that one was so out of control. It had like a NASCAR engine. I would like drive it. I would drive it to the, I, my job was to drive it to the car wash, you know, as part of this, you know, go to the car wash and get it gassed up and it's ready for him to drive back to Connecticut. And in the car wash, I drove it in. And it's just like, burp, 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 burp. And, and they're like, what is this? And I'm like, I don't know. And they open the hood. And it's all just a NASCAR engine, like the chrome, you know, the braided pipes and all this crazy stuff. And I wasn't allowed to say anything belonged to Letterman. So they looked at me and they're like, this is your car. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) $100,000 engine. And you crack that one up too? Yeah. Yeah. That one, I just stripped out the gears and did all kinds. I did. He was always in his defense. He was very nice. He's like, whatever. That's a wonder. That's such a great story. Okay. We got to take our first break. Uh, I'm talking to Brad Copeland. You are listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Everybody, it's Tim Stack from It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack asking you to watch the show Sprung on Freevee, Amazon's new free channel. I promise you it's funny, it's got heart, and my shoulder appears in episode three. Well, does that say star power? Oh, you know who that is? Yeah, see, Camden has a celebrity living in its midst. It's the actor from Son of the Beach TV's Tim Stack. Mr. Stack, good to see you again. Good evening, my good man. You know who I am? Of course I do, Mr. Stack. I'm TV's Tim Stack from movies and basic cable television. 62 items on my IMDb page, 62. But they screwed me. They counted my Quincy two-parter as one thing. Hey, can I shoot something with your uh, You know what, Mr. Stack, have you been drinking? Mr. Stack? No. No. Uh, that was a clip from My Name is Earl, which we're going to talk to. That joke in there, that was Brad's joke where I reached for the gun. Brad, I don't know if you remember that. You said that. I remember that scene very well. So reach for his gun. See if you can get, can I shoot your gun? Uh, and it's really funny. Uh, and then he asked me if I'm drunk. So we'll, we'll put Earl on the back burner for a second because I want to go back. So then you go to Los Angeles and I'm looking at the credits and I had forgotten that your first credit was on the TV show News Radio. News Radio, yeah. And how did you get that gig? So that was through Letterman. That was, uh, I mean, he got me the interviews, but but the uh, I wanted to move out. Um, 
he said, you'll never be a writer at the late show. Cause it's all national lampoon. It's all Harvard guys. And I wasn't a Harvard guy. And he's like, they're never, especially back then when Harvard was kind of running everything. Right. Simpsons. He's like, you got to go somewhere in LA and start just, you know, be a writer's assistant or a PA on a show. And this so is, how- and this is David Letterman telling you this. Yep. This is Letterman that's telling me this. Unbelievable. I mean, you crack, <laughs> you wrecked three of his cars, unless he's trying to get you out of town to get you away from his car. I'll tell you, I know I don't, the worst thing I did for him was not even wrecking his car. It was, uh, you know, I would, like I said, I gassed up his cars and took him to the parking garage. Well, one day I forgot to, to gas up the Dodge Stealth. I just forgot. And I went up to his office. I'm like, oh, sh- crap, I forgot. So I ran down, got into the garage, took the Dodge Stealth. This is like at two in the afternoon or yeah. whatever. Drove it to get the to gas, which is, you know, 15 minutes of traffic. And, and I get a call. He had back then he had the cell phone, you know, it's like mounted to the console or whatever right. in 1997. Um, and it's Lori Diamond's assistant. She's like, where are you? What happened? I'm like, oh, I forgot to get gas in the car. And she's like, Dave is standing in the parking garage, furious. <laughs> and what had happened? And he's never done that in all that time. And that was the first day that the politically incorrect numbers had come in. And he saw he came in third after Leno and and uh, Bill Maher. So in a fury, he just left the office. And he's like, screw it. I'm just I'm out. I'm not going to do a show today. I'm just going to get not- myself oh, and go home. He said, yeah, he was in a meltdown and he went to go home. He's never even I didn't know he knew where the garage was. I had no idea. So he walked down to the garage and he's like, where the hell is my key? And the valet who's never met him before is like, some kid took your car. <laughs> so I'm out. It was crazy. Um, but he was all that stuff happened, but he was nice. And yeah, the uh, advice was go to LA and just try to make it. Um, and he got me an interview um, on news radio with uh, Julie Bean, who had always also been his uh, assistant. And she's actually a great writer out here now as well. Um, and then I came out, I had never been to California. I didn't have family or friends here. And I just packed up my car and the like, you know, I still had college left. I left college. <laughs> I still yep. have, I still to this day have not graduated. Oh, is that this true? Is my, really? Yeah. I'm like 10 credits short. Um, though I'm like an honorary alumni now. So I'm like, well, what do I need it for? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I came out here and, and met for that job. And then I realized I couldn't even get another interview. I didn't know anybody, but that small, you know, group of people that he had connected me to. So I realized after interviewing for news radio, that if I didn't get that call that I had gotten the job, I was just going to have to drive back because I didn't have any money. Um, and thank God they came through and I got a PA job on news radio. And then within a year, I was a writer's assistant and, and moving my way up. And then, wow, that is, uh, that's, that's very lucky, but I understand why. So, so then you get a job as a writer's assistant on Grounded for Life, right? No, that was for Grounded for Life. I got a staff job. That was my first writing oh, job. Oh, for some reason I equated you because... I remember you sitting, first of all, when Brad types, he, you, maybe it's the musician in you, but your hand, <laughs> for those of you on YouTube, your hands go like this. It's almost like a piano player. And I remember watching you one day and I thought like, wow, can he type? And you said you were a writer's assistant. I assumed it was for Grounded for Life. But also the other, the other thing I really want to compliment you on is like, I'm pretty, I'm not good at double tasking. You're unbelievable where because you were typing, looking at the screen of what was being typed, but you were pitching something else. Really? (laughs) And I remember, I remember maybe it's because I'm old and I was old and my name is Earl. (laughs) Now I'm really old. But I remember thinking like, oh, my God, how does he? That's like a Houdini trick. 
That's like a <laughs> mental telepathy thing because you're typing like this, which I'm impressed with. What's on the screen is what somebody else pitched, but you're pitching another idea. Anyway. No, I, the thing I learned is I was a writer just on news radio for a year and a half. And then I did a bunch of pilots and then Grounded for Life read my spec script and gave me a staff job. But what made me great as a writer assistant was not speed. And I've told other writer assistants this is I only took down the good jokes. <laughs> like, the, <laughs> like writers, you know how it is. They're yeah, all pitching. sure. They're pitching. There's always, there's always some clams. I've pitched plenty of play yeah. them. Yeah. I wouldn't write those down. And, and then so when people would read the notes, they would just like, oh, here's all the funny stuff. And I just never, no one ever really pushed back. There were a few instances, like on news radio, where someone would be like, hey, I, did you get that joke? And yeah. I'm like, oh, no, I missed it. <laughs> but that's really what it was. You just you have to be a little bit of a curator on stuff. That, you know, type is but that takes guts because, you know, rooms get political and people don't like their jokes yeah. not being up on the screen. And yeah. I've, I've never been short on arrogance. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's arrogance. Uh, no, I don't think it is. I, I trust me, you wouldn't be here on this wildly popular podcast if no. Seriously, uh, I, I just always thought it was a, a confidence. I, I didn't think of it as arrogance. I just thought it was confidence, but it was fun I'll to watch, it. and I'll it was take, always I'll take confidence. But you know, always fun in the room, and so so then you uh, you get Oops, after Ground for Life, you get Arrested Development. Yep. I did three years on Ground for Life, went to Arrested Development. And then how did how did you get that gig? You just like you got submitted? That, and... that gig, I was actually, Ground for Life had a pickup for another season, another two seasons, I think. And uh, Carsey Warner was negotiating with me. And then I got the call from Mitch Hurwitz, just he had read something. Um, and I don't even remember what it was. And I went to Starbucks and met him and I sat down and I said some joke right when I sat down. And he said, I, I can tell you right now you're hired. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and it was an, it was an interesting situation because it was only six episode pickup. It was a small pickup and on a show that we all thought was really, you know, we, we saw the pilot and thought it was really great. But no one thought that show was going to succeed. And it, and it didn't in a lot of ways. It got no, I was going to say it, it, it didn't. Popularity it did. wise, it didn't. It sure did award wise. Yeah. Yeah. So then, then I, I told uh, Bill Martin and Mike Schiff, who are my bosses at, at Ground for Life, that I was going to pull out of the negotiation and go start this this other show. Um, and I think they got a little upset because they felt deservedly because they're like, well, we found you, you know, back in, even in those days, especially in these days, you don't get a lot of jobs just from from people who don't know you reading your script and bringing you in. Right. It doesn't really ha happen that much. I got really lucky that they these showrunners read every script and found someone i didn't have a, a i had like an agent that was in the 818 area code you know it wasn't like a situation it wasn't ta or caa for those of I you had, not in show business you don't want an agent with an 818 area code. yeah this was a guy that was like if he'll just take any client he's like like he was just a you know so it was just it, that is what it is and uh well, as long as i don't yeah. have to pay to print it out you're a client <laughs> yeah and weirdly enough so arrested did get canceled after two years but it outlived Grounded for Life. It actually lasted longer than Grounded for Life, which got canceled, uh, I think, the, the, the following year after I left. Um, so, yeah, I did Arrested for a couple of years, two years. And um, it's amazing and how that show has lived on. I mean, it really does. You know, years after my son discovered it and just loves it. It's like his favorite show. Yeah, it's great. And mine as well. And, and they love it. But uh, I didn't have the best. You know, I, I love that writer's room, uh, but I didn't love the hours were, were tough. And right. so I remember you talked not, about that. 
Yeah, it just wasn't my lifestyle. It was too hard. There was too, it was just too much. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to live. I don't want the job to be my life. I want to be able, and I was also doing movie stuff on the side. I was going home at night and writing, you know, I would, wouldn't get home till midnight. And I would write from midnight to one on a movie because I wanted to get a movie career going, partially because I didn't think the TV stuff would last that much longer. I'm like, how long is this going to go? I'm going to get kicked to the curb. Um, so after two years, Barbie and I both left Arrested Development, Barbie Adler. Barbie right. Feldman back and uh, and went over to my name is Earl to to start our new life and that's where we met. So um, and I do want to mention about uh, Barbie Adler, who I again I had so much fun with you guys on Earl. But He's the best. Uh, you wrote a pilot. You 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 were never like a formal team, but you mm-hmm. were sort of perceived a little bit as a team. But you were always separate writers. But you wrote yeah. a pilot that I just loved called that didn't get me. I can't believe that thing. That work wife didn't get paid because it's such an interesting dynamic of a guy and a, a man and a woman who are as intricate to each other as any marriage, if not more so. But they go home to separate lives. But at and it was called work wife. I think I mentioned that. And it just. Anyway, if you could just speak to that for us a little bit about the yeah, we were, about we that always, dynamic. It was it was Barbie is always, especially back then and and on the uh arrested show as well, uh we were like work wife and work husband. We're just super close friends. She was a newlywed, I was kind of a newlywed. So we, you know, on the weekends we were going out as couples. Um we just became really close. And I think, you know, that there was kind of a foxhole mentality at Arrested Development that really made us close. And that's why we we wanted to be together over in Arrested. So we wrote uh a, we pitched a pilot called Work Wife to Dana Walden and Gary Newman at 20th, who were also seen as work wife and work work husband. So they were really excited about it. And we took it out and ABC really wanted it, uh, and Fox wanted it. And uh and Gary Newman said, we won't force you to sell it to Fox because we know it belongs on ABC and we knew it belonged on ABC. Um, but then they got a call from the higher ups at Fox and they said, guess what? We're going to force you to sell it to Fox. And we knew it didn't belong on Fox. Like Fox, it wasn't a Fox show. It didn't really, they didn't, it wasn't their tone. Um, and it was heartbreaking because uh, ABC really wanted it, yeah. was willing to put up a commitment, but it didn't matter. It just, and we had Steve uh, McPherson calling us at one point, you know, he said, I'll give you a $10 million commitment, meaning that they would pay that if they didn't make it. Cause he's like, it doesn't matter. Cause we're going to make it, we're going to make it. So it was like, I'll put whatever number on you want. You'll never see that number because we're just going to make the TV show. Um, and we really wanted to go there, but we were forced to sell it to Fox and they killed it. That was like, we turned the script and they're like, Oh, this isn't what belongs on our air. And, uh, yeah, and the and this diet, uh, TV TV sometimes can be brutal. I really refer, can. I refer to the I don't know if you ever heard this line. The Pauline Kale, the critic for the New York Times, her line was, <laughs> "Hollywood is the only town where you can die from encouragement." That's <laughs> true, and it's that's a perfect example. Uh, yeah. Okay, we're gonna take a break. Uh, I'm talking to Brad Copeland. It's so great to see him again. You can find him on Twitter at Bradland. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at TV Stimstack. And again, Brad Copeland, I believe, came up with the term TV's Tim Stack. I believe you were the one who coined that, uh, so thank you. I'm not sure. We'll have to check with the historians. I'm not sure. <laughs> that would be uh, Hunter Covington, I think. Uh, and then, um, uh, let's say, and also Sprung is out there. And, and you've got some stuff. We'll talk about that on the other side. But if you haven't right. seen Sprung and other Greg Garcia, where that's where Brad and I met, uh, please check it out on Freebie. Okay. 
We will be right back with more It's TV's Tim Stack's radio show. My son. He's going to be all right. Oh, oh thank God. Finally, some good news There's from no this There's no other guy. way to take that. That's a great attitude. I gotta tell you, if I was getting this news, I don't know that I'd take it this well. But you said he was all right. Yes, he's lost his left hand, so he's going to be all right. You son of a Get bitch! Inside. I hate this doctor! He's a very literal man. Yes. Just- that joke cracked me up when I was going to... <laughs> He's all right. <laughs> he oh. lost his. He lost his left hand. So we'll let now. Let's put Arrested Development a little bit on the back burner. I want. I do want to talk some more about that show. Let's go back to My Name Is Earl because that's where we met. Um, do you? Yeah, I had John Hoberg and Cat Lickle on the on the on the podcast, and they were talking about their memory. I don't remember this, but their memory of Earl was they said it was like a rough room. I didn't. I didn't ever thought it was like a rough room. And anyway, I'd love to hear your your comment on that. I just thought it was a fun room. I just thought. I mean, they can kind of be the same, right? I think. I think it's a funny rough room. I, I, but I, it was all with love. I, I think there was a lot of teasing um, and, and kind of biting uh, that you probably, frankly, couldn't do today in a room. But it was always funny, deeply funny. There were just just hilarious people in there. Um, so I really liked it. I liked the ribbing, I, I, but I had gotten used to it. On Rest Development, we had Jimmy Valley. Oh, yeah, yeah, probably. I know. Yeah, I know that guy. And on my first day, like literally the first minute of the first day, I sat down. We were all introducing ourselves, and Jimmy says, this guy's overrated. And it was just out of nowhere. Right. <laughs> it, was just like, it was kind of like trial by fire, and I was like, all right, this is how this, that's how the sitcom world is. Um, but I loved it. I thought that was a fun room. You, you were always showing up in your shorts after your long drive from <laughs> Santa Barbara, rolling in, in in your yellow in your yellow Sebring. Um, and that was just an interesting world. We we're up there in the sticks and that disgusting. Uh, yes, we'll all have uh, mesothelioma from that building. I just yes, uh, that place was crazy. That place was crazy. And I remember the writers' room like looked. It looked out over nothing, right? It had a window, but the window was into the stage. It was stage. blocked. It, the window was in the stage and it was all covered up. Yeah. And, yeah. So it's like it was just a, a box within a box. Um, but I, yeah, I really had fun, uh, at least most of it. I didn't have it. Towards the end, we had some drama that played out. But the uh, yeah, I think it was just great. And, and you know, J.B. Cook and all those guys there. And we were you know playing Mario Kart at lunch. And we would just scream, you know, we had like this whole $5 bet board going. The money would triple and quadruple all over just grown people playing Mario Kart. <laughs> it was just great. It was really, it was like camp for two years. But um, one of the things, and so that was an easy transition for you to go from Arrested Development to some of the, or 
not Son of the Beach. Son of the Beach, I, that's where I left to come there. That was an easy transition for you to go to Earl. It was. I mean, cre- personality-wise, it was. I love, like, the writers were all the same, and they were all talented, and, and so it felt like going from one room of geniuses to another. Um, creatively, it was different. There was a different process, and, and you know, it was – Greg Garcia, you know, is in the other – he's a genius – but he's not in the room constantly with you. And, and I wasn't used to that because Mitch Hurwitz is always in the room. So right. like the, I, I wasn't used to the, 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 yeah. the number two who is Bobby Bowman in that show kind of being the guy and then t- reporting back and forth. So that stuff, uh, I, I didn't do so well with that, frankly, but the, uh, but it was just fun. I, yeah. and it just, I met so many people that we're all still friends today, which is great when you come away with these lifelong friends, you know? So you had mentioned buying things and you got a guitars with John Hoberg, but I remember a contest and I, I think Hoberg was in on it and maybe Mike Penny where people, this is going to sound horrible, but I, you know, <laughs> people took, and I don't think you were in on this. I think it was Mike Penny and John Hoberg. People took extra Ambien at night and then they would go on ebay and whoever bought the craziest thing by morning won the contest and i think it was john hoberg who won the contest because he had bought a key to a castle like it was a key that was three feet long like something ivanhoe would have used to open a castle door or something yeah, and John Hoberg, and that was it. Was just that sounds right. I didn't play that game, but the uh, I was always there. I was a witness for it. I think at one point, John bought a car. Yeah, like he he had bought like a, one of his Trans Ams or whatever. He had bought. It's it's. I guess you have a half hour zone after you take the Ambien where you're still awake, but you're not going to remember that half hour before you fall asleep. And in that half hour is when they'd make the purchase. I see. I think actually part of the contest might be you don't, you can't start buying till a half an hour is over. So it exactly. really get like, you have no idea really what you're doing. Somebody needs to watch you so you don't drive a car after that. So, um, but I do remember in the room, you mentioned uh, uh, me coming down in shorts. I do remember, because they brought up this moment. They, they, this was their example of it being a rough room. One day you wore some shirt. I don't remember the shirt. You wore a shirt, to, a shirt to work, and I guess you got a lot of grief for it, whatever. I remember not wearing shorts one day, and I wore jogging pants to work. <laughs> and Barbie Adler lit me up for about an hour on because they sort of did look like I should be – at a nursing home, like these yeah. are the clothes a seventy-five-year-old man wears. Anyway, it was Barbie uh, is. Uh, uh, I, I do remember the shirt. It was a. It was a trader. It was a. Uh, it was a Hawaiian shirt. I would award that day a Paul Smith Hawaiian shirt, and they were they were telling me I looked like a uh, bagger at Trader Joe's, which I. <laughs> uh, but the Barbie especially it's she's like Don Rickles in there. So you, and she's always been, I still see her every weekend almost. And, yeah. and she's still the same. You can't wear the wrong thing around her. Or she's going to go after it's, you. It's so uh, funny because really, it kept going on. It was like an hour. Really Barbie, you're still on the jogging pants. Yeah. Because they're <laughs> so ridiculous. And she'll keep bringing it back and bringing it back and bringing it back. But I think like that, that, Laughter. I love that. I think that's one of the things that, you know, comedy comes from that. And I always like that about the Earl room and other rooms I've been in, but Earl, especially 
the more of that you have, the more it's like a frat house, then the funnier it gets, the funnier the scripts get. I agree. So let's use that as a transition because you've also written all these big successful movies. I mean, I was looking, the movie Ferdinand may, has made like $300 million. It's, it's, I mean, these are big monster hits, Wild Hogs, huge, big hit. How did the movie writing start? The movie writing started out of desperation on Arrested Development because that first year I really thought it was going to get canceled and I loved it. And we were, like I said, we had just gotten married. We wanted to have a family. And I'm like, I got to have some kind of other income when this all falls away. Um, so it, it was uh, anxiety writing. And I wrote a movie called Corporate Retreat. Oh, uh, yes. Yes. I remember this now. This was great. And it sold and it sold to Disney. Um, and that just opened all these doors. It was a really, people really liked the script. Uh, Vince Vaughn later. <laughs> Do you know what happened? I don't know if you know no, this story. And then I thought you were going to maybe make a pilot of, but no, you were going to make the movie. I was going to make the yes. movie, uh, but the movie's rated R. Um, so you actually, you know, I'm, I'm interrupting. You actually talked to me about, there was some part, maybe I was going to play some older yes. corporate guy. Yes. Yeah, you were going to be the CEO in there. And so what happened was they, Disney couldn't make that movie because it was rated R and Touchstone had gone down. Um, they weren't after Wild Hogs and all these other things. Uh, uh, Dick Cook, who was running the studio, said no more adult movies, no more Touchstone. We're only doing, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean type stuff. So Disney gave me that movie back um, to take out to direct. So I took it out. I met with Vince Vaughn to be in it. And Vince, we didn't really hit it off. <laughs> He was, uh, you know, he was, he was nice enough, but he's like, look, you're a first time director. I don't take notes. Uh, I'm going to want a final cut and edit. And I'm like, this doesn't sound fun. And I still no. had that same confidence of like, I want it to be fun or I don't want to do it at all. Also, you're coming um, from TV where the writer is important. Yeah, It was just like, I don't want this to be, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. And I, I didn't feel right. And, uh, even though, but he was very complimentary of the script. He's like, I love that it's in Bora Bora. I love that it's about a retreat. I love that it's, you know, uh, overwater bungalows and all these set pieces. And then, it, you know, I, I went back and I called UTA. I said, no, it's not a fit. I don't want to do it. And then a month later, Vince Vaughn, the trades come out. Vince Vaughn has just sold Couples Retreat. Yes. Based on Bora Bora with the overwater bungalows. And next thing you know, my movie was dead because... There, you can read into I didn't. No, that's an even worse story than set up the Pauline Kale quote. That's yeah. <laughs> it's like I said, Hollywood. Hollywood can be rough sometimes. Yeah, but, uh, and that movie did not do well, right? Couples Retreat. I don't think that. No, I, I don't know. I, I never looked, and every time I saw a poster, for understandable reasons, I had to look away. <laughs> it really was, and it was Salt in the Wound that Jason Bateman starred in it, who I knew, and it was like, ah. And I never really told him, you know, I didn't want to put that in in his conscience of, hey, you're doing a movie that maybe I wrote <laughs> that uh, uh, Vince Vaughn is doing instead. But um, yeah, so that. But anyway, that opened doors. Um, and because that script was was well liked, I was able to pitch Wild Hogs, and that was the shortest. Easy, I, I just literally said "City Slickers on motorcycles," and you could see people go, "Okay, <laughs> that makes sense. Let's do that." So, um, that so kind of, I'm sorry. sorry. I, so that idea came. That was your own idea, or somebody gave it to you? Uh, it was an idea that I had with my friend Bobby, a co my college, my best friend that I went to college with. We right. were just talking one day. Uh, Bobby lives in Jupiter. And Bobby said, what about all these crazy posers, you know, going to Daytona Bike Week? They're not bikers. They're just dentists and stuff. Right. And, um, you know, so then the movie idea sprung out of that. 
Uh, and I called UTA, I called my talent people. And I said, I want to do a movie about these 60 year old posers on motorcycles. And they're like, run with it. Cause no one else is really doing that. It's a great. Just say, just it was great. Like one of those ideas. It was obvious, you know, it was a little zeitgeisty and, um, yeah, but it's a perfect pitch. It's city slickers on motorcycles. It's the great. City motorcycles, but it wasn't supposed to be. You know, I wrote it for like the. It was supposed to be old school. It was supposed to be like Vince, uh, Vince, and uh, uh, we don't Will want Ferrell. Vince Vaughn. <laughs> well, back that was before Vince had burned me. But it was supposed to be like like Will Ferrell. I really wanted Will Ferrell to be in it. And then Tim Allen got the script and just jumped into it. And Disney called. And they're like, "It's going to be a Tim Allen movie." I'm like, "All right, yeah. <laughs> at least it'll get made. It'll be fun." Uh, so yeah, we, when we went through and then I just started animation kind of came from the same world. I just started getting in and pitching ideas and then rewriting Rio and other animated movies. Um, and then started writing animated. Okay. We're going to take our final break. Um, talking to Brad Copeland, it's radio with TV stim stack. And we'll talk about, uh, some more about wild hogs. And I want to get back to arrested development a little bit again on the other side. See you in a second. It's Tim Stack, and having been in show business for so long, I have a lot of really funny friends, and you can hear them all on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. That's part of the Jeremiah Show. So listen. I don't think I've ever seen you guys around here before. What's your... Uh... Hey, hey, hey. Wild hogs. Yeah. Is that the name of your little gang? It's not a gang. We're just friends riding from Cincinnati to the coast. Hey, man. <laughs> We in your seat? No, no, cause we. No, 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 no. We roll. No, 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 no. No, I insist. Sit, sit, sit. I insist. I think I'm gonna join you, fellas. Uh, that's from Wild Hogs. I'm with Brad Copeland, the writer of that film. You're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Um, Brad, that movie, obviously wildly successful. And in talking to you, I'm assuming that was only a great experience, right? It was. Making it was great. It was fun. And I had never been on a big movie set like that. That was that, big, That's like, part of my question. It's like, I remember you talking about, because uh, my thinking is like, oh, my God, John Travolta is going to show up here. Like, that to me would be really cool because he's such an icon. And yeah, I remember you telling me like he's oh my god, he's so nice, he's so cool. He was he's the nicest great. guy in the world. As, as was Ray Liotta, rest in peace, who was in that clip. Uh, they they all were so nice. Um, yeah, it, it was the only thing I wasn't ready for is in t- you know you're kind of king in TV. Yeah, um, and in movies, no one gives a shit. <laughs> Excuse my language. That's all right. Uh, about the, about the uh, screenwriter, like they don't care. So it's like they're like you know you're you're very treated very nicely. But if you're like, hey, I, that's not how I imagine that shot, or that's not how I imagine that joke, the director's like, okay, great, yeah, and just like walks away. <laughs> and so right. you you can't you don't get to call the shots. Uh, I was I didn't really know that. 
But you were on the set the whole time they were making it, weren't you? A lot of it. Yeah, a lot of it. I'd say at least 60 or 70 percent. We shot it in, in New Mexico and I was down there. And it was just it was just a blast. And it was just crazy. It was so just trailers everywhere. And I'd never been on something. It's that so, big. It like it's so much money. That's the thing. Like when I look back at some of the beaches, like three trailers and a hot dog cart, like that's the budget. <laughs> and then having worked on something, you know, Castaway that I worked on, it's like I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a it's an army. It's like a legion yep. of an army that shows up to a location. And they get films made. Yeah, it, it's incredible. And then, you know, we, we made the movie and uh, it, everyone kind of made fun of it. They made fun of the, the, of the movie, you know, with not just the, the critics, but just in general. They're like, oh, there's all these old guys together. Who cares? So then when it came out and it did really, really well, it was just the sweetest victory. Yeah. It's like, ah, screw all you guys. It came out and it made, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh and now it's became become this iconic thing. I was watching a hot tub time machine the other day with my son, with my 14 year old. Yeah. And there's a line in hot tub time machine where Rob Corddry goes, come on guys. We're, you know, we're all together. It's wild hogs. And Oliver, my son looked at me, he's like, they're referencing your movie in another movie. And I'm like, yeah, that's like a huge honor. Like you don't see that much. You don't see other, you know, so the fact that it became kind of this pop culture thing where, Ricky Gervais made a joke about it two years ago in the at the Hollywood uh, at the Golden Globes and stuff. It's great. I, I like that it's become this thing. I what can I say? I like the movie. It's still funny and 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 those performers and uh, just so now this to go back to the confidence thing. So I'm wondering, were you intimidated? Like you show up as the writer to say the rehearsals. Are you yeah. intimidated? Are you hiding in the corner, or are you out talking to people? I was out talking to people, but the uh, the director of that movie, Walt Becker, wasn't like a guy that had directed a hundred things, and he's just you know what I mean. He was still so he needed you. He needed me, but I think he liked having some backup on stuff. I mean, there were a few times where I'm like, "This joke doesn't sound right," and here's why. And he would say, "Okay, go tell them that (laughs) to the directors (laughs) or to the actors." You know, go. Yeah. Um, I think I think all of us and him, including, were, were you know, Tim Allen. I, I don't think it's super receptive to comedic notes. And, and uh, so it's like stuff like that. It, we were all a little intimidated, but we were all just trying to make a funny movie. And those guys do just have so much natural talent that a lot of it is just, you're just being a traffic cop and you're just watching them do their thing, you know? And, and Ray Liotta, you said, rest in peace. That obviously went, well, I would be so scared though, because of Goodfellas, I would be so panicked to talk to him. Like yeah. maybe you could try it this way. My, my my fear with him was he, that he wasn't going to care. Like, I really thought like, oh, he's such a good actor and good fellas and all these things. And now he's doing my dopey movie about, you know, city slickers on motorcycles. He's going to show up and be this guy that's like, oh, I'm just here to collect a paycheck. Where do I stand? Or whatever. But it was the opposite. Like, like you hear in that clip, he really leaned into it and had fun with it and just like chewed the scenery as you wanted that character, the bad guy to do. Right. Um, and it was great. So it was just really fun. It felt really good of like, Oh, you're actually really going to bring this to life and make it special. And he really did. He was a great bad guy in that movie. Yeah. Um, I just saw him this guys- weekend in uh, cocaine bear, which, Oh, uh, is he in that? I gotta go watch it. He's in that. My take was that film could use some cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> I just thought like, Maybe a blast might make it. I don't know. I was real. It's good. It's good. It's funny. It's good. I just was one of those like, oh man, I want this to be like 
a laugh out loud for two hour experience because I want to do that in the movies again. Yeah. Um, So, um, so, so then back to Arrested Development. Well, back to Arrested Development. Again, you've got, I remember you talking like, because I would sort of run through the names, like who was cool to work with. And I remember, again, rest in peace, Jessica Walters, you, because I'm thinking play Misty for me. Is she, you know, and it was just the opposite. You said she was wonderful. She was. I mean, she was, she was, you know, particular. Uh (laughs) things but she was great like all the, the all the actors on that were so nice tony hale's one of the nicest people in the world will arnett jason bateman yeah uh portia they were all so nice and then we had a lot of guest stars you know liza minnelli was great i remember you a, talking about her you, you're hanging out with liza minnelli which to me is you know, Liza. We, we shot at the magic castle one time and she was the you know they have that piano that plays by itself and uh-huh. it started playing somewhere over the rainbow and she just sat down and started singing it and really? i was sitting there and I looked around and no one else was there because it was like in between, you know, it was a lighting setup. And I'm like, where, where's the video? <laughs> like, oh I just, you just know in that moment, she's singing it and I'm right here and she's right there. There was just a lot of magical things like that, that, that in that show that I'll just never forget. And a lot of just a lot of really talented people. That's a crazy story. That's a crazy. Yeah. You wish you had that on video. That would be. Yeah. I just wish someone would have seen it. I literally was looking around like someone see this so we, you could verify that. <laughs> Nobody happened. believed you afterwards. Yeah. No, I exactly. saw her sing it. It was somewhere in the rainbow. I saw her. I saw her. <laughs> um, and um, so then back to the f- feature writing. So when you when you're by yourself, because you talked about in the room with all the laughs, which I again I really love. But then you're by yourself. You obviously trust yourself enough to know. Like I think this is funny. I'm going to go with it. But nobody in the room is laughing. You don't have that judge telling you, yeah, this is really funny after pitching the joke do which one do you prefer or maybe you don't need to make a choice i i, I prefer the one where i don't have a judge I, I really do like to to hear it in my head and to see how it does and to go with that i, I don't like having jokes shot down I, I i never liked it i you know i mean plenty of my jokes deserve to be shot down and i shoot down more of my own than anybody right but i think something's really great and I've had jokes in everything I've done where the, the showrunner is just like, eh, uh, and I'm just like, I know that would work. And, and I haven't always been right, but you, it's nice to, to, to be in that, uh, to be a screenwriter and you get the last say. Right. Um, so, and it's even better to, you know, I've directed one movie. I want to direct another one here in a couple of years. Uh, it's even better. You know, if you're the writer director, you really get the whole enchilada of, of getting it across and, and getting your vision uh, to the screen. And there's just nothing more satisfying than that the downside of that is the people, you know, you're by yourself and you're not with the John and Katz and Tim stacks and, and uh, JB cooks that make you laugh. And that can get a little bit like, Oh, this just isn't as fun of a, of a nine to five job when you're screenwriting for like being a novelist. Uh, you mentioned JV cook. We can go off topic for a second. You, uh, he was this really funny guy. He wrote on King of the Hill. He's a comic. He's from Texas. He he had the craziest Texas stories, just like (laughs) one after another, after another. But you mentioned your shirt from Trader Joe's JB cook. When we would finish work, I don't know if you remember this. He would sometimes go to the Vons in Valencia where he lived and he would work as a bagger. But he wasn't paid. 
he would just bag like people. Yeah. yeah, he would just pay people and just talk to them. And we always made jokes like, why you know, why aren't you going home? Your wife and it's like, ah, eh, she doesn't like to hear my stories, but the people, at, <laughs> but the people at Vons love my stories, and and he would do that. And we have we ended up getting a bagger story on my name is Earl out of that. I remember that that the kid from Napoleon Dynamite uh, came on the set. Or there yeah. was a, there was a little conspiracy there because there was a rumor that what was his name from Napoleon Dynamite? I can't remember his name. We'll, we'll get it. Um, there was because he has a twin brother, and there was a rumor that sometimes he would send the twin brother to do his jobs. <laughs> Did you ever hear that? I think I have. Yeah. And so out of that bagger story, he was the guest star on the bagger story on My Name Is Earl. But I sort of bought into it because I remember at lunchtime. Um, I had met him before on the set of bench warmers. And mm-hmm. so we're talking and he was a huge nightstand, um, fan, uh, John heater. And he's got a twin brother, John heater. So, uh, I met him on bench warmers and he was a huge nightstand with Dick teacher fan. Like he, he really like knew the episodes and was like, I was like, Oh my God, John heater, Napoleon dynamite likes my show. So then when my name is Earl came around a couple years later, we're in the lunch line. I was like, hey, John, uh, nice to see you again. And he, was, he looked at me like he had no clue. I went, <laughs> Tim Staff, we met at Benchwarmers. We talked a lot about Nightstand. And he just looked at me again like he had no clue. So I tossed it off like, God forbid he doesn't recognize me. It must be the twin brother. <laughs> I'm sure it was that. I'm sure it was the twin. <laughs> Um, so now we're uh, we're wrapping up here, but I ju- I know you sold a didn't sold I'm sure they came it was an easy sale for you a pilot set in Las Vegas you're writing that writing a pilot set in Las Vegas for NBC we'll see we'll see how that's going to go in the future um, and is it a um, is it a multicam because those no it's a single cam which might work against it I think right now NBC is really leaning into multicams uh, because of Night Court being so successful. Um, but I have another pilot also I'm, I'm working on, uh, and I have a movie that I'm adapting for Amazon called The Beatrice Prophecy, which is based on a book called The Beatrice Prophecy by Katie Camillo, who wrote Tales of Despero and uh, Win Dixie. Um, and Florin Yulsey is a movie I adapted for Disney. So I'm, I'm adapting. That's a big, crazy, epic, medieval movie that I'm doing for Amazon that'll take the next six months. So that wow. we'll see how that goes. So here's the question. How do you divide your time? Like, how do you say eight to 12, I'm doing this one, two to four, I'm doing that? How does that work for you? I do it. I never shift during the day. I just do it like, okay, this week I'm going to finish this, you know, scene or, or, or rewrite of this one thing. And then next week I move to the next thing. And sometimes I'll, I'll shift one day after the other. Um, like this, this, this morning I had to do a bunch of notes on a pilot. And tomorrow I'm going to go back to focus on another uh, movie that, uh, that I haven't mentioned that I can't mention okay. <laughs> and work on that for a day. So it's just, you just put your head in different spaces, but I think uh, you, some people look at it as a strength. I think it's just an attention span thing. I like to have multiple things going. Well, and I, go, I, get I go back really to this. Yeah. Let's go back. To I that. go back to this. Like I just like, never saw anything like it, but I think you would be the guy capable of doing that. And Greg Garcia too. It's like, the, the ability to focus, I don't have that ability. I have the ability to uh, come up with funny lines, but I don't have that ability, which is uh, 
it's really a talent and you're uh, reaping the benefits. So thank you. Uh, we are out of time. You've been listening to Brad Copeland. Brad, thank you so much. You can it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can find him at Bradland on Twitter. You're too busy. You don't get to tweet that much. But I notice when they do show up. Um, and this has been a pleasure. You've been listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Thank you to Jeremiah Higgins, always our producer, Dr. D, Richard Dugan, the engineer. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, guys. As always, a big thanks to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and me, your announcer, Tony Kelly. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.